0: Thank you. What a great time we've had so far. The uh, speakers, the input we've had, inspiring us on so many levels, from Debbie through John Tyson, Lazarus and Maggie yesterday, Agu, all our seminar speakers. And I trust we still have some hours to go, but I trust that we'll leave here ready to you know, take the next chapter to be spurred on to go and you know, win the world for Christ. And uh, you know, we're gonna be praying more than we ever have and we're gonna be reaching out more than we ever have and we're engaging with our community on a deeper level. And um, all these things are hugely important. I wanna talk about something which is also important and if we're really to do all those things as effectively as God has called us to do them, We need to take this into account at the same time. As some of you will know, 2017, the end of it was marked by serious illness in our family, starting with the youngest. Our grandson, Jesse, was in hospital here with bacterial meningitis for a period of time. And then my mother came to stay at Christmas, and on Christmas Day, she is the oldest in our family. She had what is known as a type two heart attack and spent 11 days again, here in hospital. And we really appreciated it that some of you were aware of this and prayed for us. I'm really happy to report that both are doing really well. Both are showing no apparent signs of long-term effects. But, you know, those, those little seasons were challenging on top of life and ministry and everything else. And my trips back and forth to the hospital, which were many, they weren't helped by the farcical situations that I experienced on two of my visits. So on one occasion, I left uh, Debbie in Jesse's room and I went to the car park, which is an awful long way away from the ward, and so I got completely lost. I'm useless at directions, and I got very lost. And I got there and I discovered that the ticket machine does not take cards, credit or debit cards. So I went to the car and I opened up and we've got a little ashtray there and in there were coins, so I counted the coins out and we had three pounds 80, which was awesome. Went back to the machine, put it in, four pounds please. So, oh my goodness, I'm 20p short. So I called Debbie, I said, look, I'm 20p short, do you have any change? She said, yes, I do, I've got loads. So I said, great, I'll meet you. And so we arranged to meet in ear, nose and throat. She got lost on the way to there, I got lost as well. We eventually connected up and she gave me 20p, I'm saying, Is that all? She said, that's all you asked for. So I've now got, (laughs) I've got 20p. So I then get back to the car. The coins are back in the car at this point and I went to get the coins. As I did, I got them out, I counted it and I dropped a coin, a 20p, I dropped it. So now it's gone. And I'm searching all around the car. I think that's just not possible, it's gone. It's totally, eventually I got in the car, I drove it out of the parking space and parked it in another parking space then got back to and I found, my coin, and grabbed it. I ran to the ticket machine. I put the ticket in, ticket in ready with my four pounds, and t- multic, five pounds. <laughs> no, no, this is not possible. So I stood there quite a while wondering what to do. I eventually found in my pocket here a folded up fiver, a new plastic fiver. I don't know whether the machine is not working out how to accept a plastic fiver, or whether it's because it was folded, but it went in. T- reject, reject. The story went on from there. I was eventually rescued by a very kind woman. That hospital, the Queens Medical Center, was until a few years ago the largest teaching hospital in Europe and it has been described as a gigantic maze with endless miles of corridors. I am told by a doctor that it is possible to run a full marathon within its corridors without ever passing the same point. So my mother's now in hospital, and uh, I left her and headed for my car, again, in the furthest car park, car park number three, and um, I got lost. I eventually got to it and uh, discovered I had no wallet. I knew I had my wallet, because I just paid for Wi-Fi in my mother's room. So I, it belongs in this part of my leather jacket here or in my jeans there is simply no way I've got my wallet. So I then walk all the way back to her ward and got completely lost. And then I get there, I'm so hot, I'm just sweating terribly now, so I've got my jacket off, I now take my jumper off, everything else. I'm like, the wallet is not on the bed, it's not on your tray. I know where it is. There, in my shirt pocket, where I put it, <laughs> as I was paying for that Wi-Fi. So then I put all my coat stuff and kit back on, you know, and I'm heading out then to find the car park. This occasion, not just lost, but utterly lost. As I was beginning to lose hope of ever finding a way out and beginning to consider climbing out of a ground floor window, (laughs) at last, a sign of hope. Yes. I opened the door, failing to see the little yellow note on the glass, and headed down the corridor to freedom, only to be met by this. (laughs) The corridor is boarded up. It took me just over an hour to get to my car. (laughs) And thoughts did go through my mind of you must be joking. How much more can possibly go wrong? And this scene that some of you will be old enough to remember came to mind. The remarkable thing was, which really quite surprised me, was that I found myself relatively at peace. I even chuckled at the bizarreness of the situation. When I met a woman 15 minutes after having passed her in a corridor, I eventually stopped and said, excuse me, can you help me? I passed you a quarter of an hour ago. Could you show me how to get out of this building? And I, but I was chuckling as I was experiencing this. A few years ago, if I had been worried about my sick loved ones and experienced that level of growing frustration, I quite likely would have been searching for a branch to hit somebody or something, like you saw in the clip there with John Cleese. But I experienced a peace that a few years ago, I don't think I would have known. I talked about this experience and others with my spiritual director and also my psychotherapist, which I mentioned last year. I'm spiritually cared for and emotionally cared for by these two experts. And I said, you know, I think I'm a different person. Over the last two or three years, I've become, you know, I'm living in a place of peace in the midst of storms that are completely shocking to me. And they resonated with it. I said, you are. You've been internally rewired. Your attention to uh, your devotional life, your attention to your emotional life, you are being changed. And those of you who were here last year at the conference will remember I spoke on thriving, not just surviving, through intentionally caring for our emotional, our spiritual, and our physical health. And I was delighted to hear some of your responses to that talk, that a number of you have been exploring emotionally healthy spirituality, and I'm aware of several senior pastors who've actually invested in punch bags and try as I might of, you know, to think of something original to share with you this year, something fresh, you know, something entertainingly different. As the Lord's continued to speak to me about this through the year, I felt him encourage me to return to this theme by speaking on a particular aspect of emotional health, and that is rest. I should say from the outset that I speak as one who hasn't got this completely sorted, my tendency, is to keep going when there's work to be done, but it is something that I've been personally challenged about and I believe the Lord would really want to encourage all of us to take this seriously. I wonder how many of you, since you arrived in this building this week, have answered the question, how are you? How's it going? And in your answer was the word busy. Yeah, yeah, busy. You're not alone if that's the case. Most of us are busy. We live busy lives. There have been many seasons where that word has been the obvious one that would describe my life and uh, many of you know, for instance, that I enjoy the finer things in life, I, especially high-quality, fluid refreshment. Doesn't matter what it is. As long as it's expensive and well-created, you know, created, like fine whiskey or really good coffee or Uh, You know, a few years ago, I decided I would explore the world of great tea. So I discovered a shop in Nottingham called Wittards and I bought some top quality tea, actually tea bags there to replace my PG tips. So they were put aside and I had these beautiful, oh my goodness, Earl Grey, you know, just wonderful. Anyway, so I put the kettle on. I'm waiting for the kettle to boil and I unwrap unwrap the box and read it and I'm looking forward to this new pleasure in my life, quality tea. And then I read on the back of the packet, allow the tea to brew for three to four minutes. I thought, I haven't got four minutes to wait for a teabag to brew. I've got to get back to my desk. I've got work to do. And I realized, it really shocked me. I realized, you know, my life is not really that sustainable. A recent study found that two-thirds of employees feel they don't have enough time to get their work done. A number of work days now being lost to stress, depression, and anxiety has increased by a quarter in the past five years. And that trend doesn't look like it's going to change. We have to make choices about how much we're going to be molded into the pattern of this world. There are now more work-saving devices than ever before, and it cannot be denied that technology has increased efficiency. We go back some decades, my mother used to make all of our bread, and I remember watching her go through the process of mixing flour and making dough, and then kneading that, and then yeast, and then it goes in the fridge to be proved for a few hours, and it comes out, it's kneaded again, and then it's made into a shape, and then it's put into an oven, and it's slowly cooked. And then there was a thing back in the 1960s called a bread knife, where you actually took a loaf and you actually sawed it into slices. It took time to make bread compared to the seconds it now takes to throw a loaf of ready-sliced Mother's Pride into a supermarket trolley. 20 years ago, only as recently as that, certainly 30 years ago, if you wanted to correspond with someone, you would get out your Basil and Bond pad and probably your fountain pen, and you would do this thing called composing a letter. And then you would walk to what was called a post box and then you'd have to wait for it to be delivered by what is now called snail mail. <laughs> and then sometime later, you might receive a reply. Now we have email; electronic mail is instant, and so with that, and Facebook Messenger, and Twitter, and WhatsApp, and everything else, we can communicate with sometimes hundreds of people pretty much instantly. Technology has undoubtedly increased our efficiency on one level, but it hasn't slowed us down. The introduction of labor-saving devices doesn't mean that uh, the spare time we have now is just spent in leisure, as experts were predicting back in the 60s and 70s. We just filled our life with more stuff. And changes in the way we communicate have blurred the lines between home and work. Six in 10 workers looking at emails on their phone, answering work-related Facebook and WhatsApp messages outside of working hours, And this is a particular challenge uh, for those of us who are in pastoral ministry, actually employed by a church to uh, do the job of pastoring because the lines between our job and the rest of our life can become very unclear, especially as we're passionate about what we do. I don't know how many of you have done StrengthsFinder. Uh, The results for me highlight that responsibility, belief, and achiever are my top three strengths. And uh, all of these are good traits, no doubt, but together they form a cocktail which can push me pretty hard. And those around me, indeed, can be pushed pretty hard. From my early 20s, I've always been a hard worker. And so in our first years of marriage, rarely took a day off, rarely took any holiday. And we would turn up at family events. We'd go and see Debbie's family and we'd have a meal and then all the peop- sisters and so on would be around. and, and um, her family would notice that I was always tired. John's always tired. And a phrase which has been said many times over back in those years was, poor John. Do you remember, poor John, been working too hard. As I moved from being a jeweler into pastoral ministry, my mindset was, while I'm now working for God and devoting my life to Him and His purposes, I'm gonna pour out my life in the service of God and I'm gonna get to the last day of it absolutely shattered, having spent my life in ministry. And there's something good about that on one level, but I've come to realize the best way to get to the end to have been the most effective, to have had the greatest impact for the kingdom that God has wired into me and given me opportunity to leverage is to be the best me I can be. Indeed, the best husband and father and grandpa that I can be. And that comes out of a place of rest, not out of a place of striving. I will be more effective in ministry for the long term if I make it for the long term in good shape. Now, I don't think I'm alone in having a fairly full diary. The theme of this conference is freedom, and I suspect many of us really don't feel that free when we look at our diaries. Jesus said that he came to give us life and life to the full, but I'm not sure that a crammed diary is quite what he had in mind, life to the full. He was the most effective person, of course, in kingdom ministry. And uh, he not only modeled a pattern of busyness and of rest, but we can learn about his intention for us from passages like Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I love the message translation of that passage. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, Jesus says. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You'll learn to live freely, to live in freedom. We can see rest and freedom are evidently linked. Jesus says, are you tired, are you worn out? If so, his invitation is to walk with him and to live freely and lightly. And he invites us to learn from him. Watch how he does it. What do we learn from him? We can see with Jesus and his ministry as it's recorded for us in the gospels, this this rhythm of work and rest, perfectly modeled by him. His schedule breathed. You know, there are periods of intensity and of withdrawal and there are numerous examples of this if you walk with him through the Gospels. There were many, many people wanting Jesus' time, but even when he was most in demand, he wasn't pressurized by other people's agendas, and he really did live freely and lightly. All of us will experience seasons, of course, of busyness, But in this passage, we see that although our to-do lists may be long, God's intention is that there, there should be a sense of freedom, a freedom that only comes when we're not striving and struggling through these busy times, but trusting in him and doing those things that he has uniquely created us for. And then the second thing we learn from this passage is that his yoke is supposed to be easy. A yoke was designed for a specific animal who's gonna pull a plow or a cart, and it it fitted them perfectly. And what I believe Jesus is saying here is that resting in him, of course it doesn't mean there's not loads of work to do, what it does mean is there are things that he has uniquely designed for each of us to do. And so if life feels that it's ill-fitting, it's burdensome, it's too heavy, then we're probably doing some things designed for somebody else to do. God has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he created in advance for each of us to do. And if we're doing those good works, we're gonna find life works. If we're finding we're doing good works that he created someone else to do, we're gonna get worn out, and that other person's not gonna get the opportunity to fulfill their calling. We're invited to partner with him, not striving in the work of extending his kingdom, but freely and lightly keeping company with him. Now this is not only something Jesus taught on, but experts today have gotten onto this. And during the summer holidays, I read a, a, an excellent book by Alex Young Kim Pang, called Rest, there's a picture of it, Rest. Why you get more done when you work re- less. Why you get more done when you work less. And it really was eye-opening, it was really helpful in understanding rest, time off, for living and working in the most productive and the most fulfilling way. Alex Pang encourages us that rather than thinking about work and rest as opposites, and we've just got to rest so we can get back to work, but we need to think of them as partners. And in the book, which I recommend you read, although it's got 250 pages of a lot of evidence, but he presents overwhelming scientific research which shows that reasonably spaced rest periods increase productivity over working continually. Neuroscientists have found that far from being dormant when we sleep, when we rest, when we even daydream, parts of the brain that are inactive during work become active during rest. Strengthening the brain, enhancing our capacity to learn, be creative, problem solve, improves our emotional intelligence. And so sometimes you know, you'd be at your desk and think, how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna resolve this problem? There's this and this. I can't see the wood for the trees. Go and sit in the garden, listen to a bird singing, and half an hour later you're like, that would work, an idea comes to you. It came because of the rest, not because of the striving. So when God asks us to build rest into our lives, it's because he he understands the crucial role it plays. Pang unpacks that it's not, rest is not just not working, rest is not the absence of work, rest is something very deliberate. And one of the chapters I love in his book there is a chapter on deep play. An activity which is really enjoyable, but is also absolutely engrossing probably quite challenging and demanding of one's complete focus. I have a few hobbies that could fit into that category, but one one that particularly stands out for me is riding my bike. Taking off for hours at a time, maybe days at a time, preferably somewhere in the wild countryside, it recharges me emotionally. And even if I get back physically tired from a long ride, I'm replenished and rested and refreshed in a most amazing way. Last summer, my motorcycle was 20 years old and it was beginning to get a bit unreliable and spurred on by the encouragement from my spiritual director, my psychotherapist, and my coach (laughs) to get out and ride more. One of them said to me, would you be a better national director if you rode more? Yes. Would you be a better pastor if you rode more? Would you be a better husband if you rode more? Yes. He said, well, ride more. (laughs) I was also encouraged by the chair of Vineyard Movement Trustees to get something more reliable, so I bought a younger bike. And with it, I got this, The Owner's Manual. It's a very important little book, which I've consulted carefully. In fact, in the first week of getting the bike, I read most of the 270 little pages. There are a lot of pictures in there, but nevertheless, I did read it, and it tells me how things work, what I need to do to keep the bike running in tip-top condition. Got to keep the tire pressures correct and know how the controls work and check the oil and the coolant levels. And it tells me in here about the maintenance schedule. If I do certain things at certain times, change the oil every year, top up the fluids, replace the air filter, then my bike will perform well and it will last me a long time. And this is written by Ducati, the manufacturer, who should know, they designed the bike They know everything about how to enable it to run at peak performance for the duration of its life. Now, we all have an owner's manual. We all have at least one copy of it. You know what it's called, right? The Bible, it's written by the manufacturer who designed us, who knows everything about us, and how to enable us to run at peak performance for the duration of our lives. And God says the maintenance schedule for living for instance, is every seventh day, we're to take a day of rest, a Sabbath. To rest physically, get replenished emotionally, get refocused spiritually. And taking a Sabbath, you know, is something I've been personally challenged about on a number of occasions, uh, not least when I went on staff at Southwest London Vineyard. And uh, I was, about 30 years ago that was, and I was working, I was studying at London Bible College, Uh, which involved a journey of four hours on eight trains to attend my lectures each day. And then I'd return home and lead two small groups with Debbie and then serve and pioneer other ministries we were involved in. We also had a brand new baby who shared our room. Actually, he's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's here and he's about, how old are you, 30? (laughs) 29. It's 30 in a week, exactly, February 6th. I remember it well, so... 30 years, a week under 30 years, um, he was rubbish at sleeping, quite honestly. He shared our bedroom, that was the problem, and so also my nights were very disturbed. And so John Mumford, who was leading the the church, South West London at the time, he insisted I take a full day off every week, which I'd never really done up to then. He said, look, life is a marathon, it is not a sprint. If you're going to be functioning for the long haul, you have to get this sorted out. And although at the time I could hardly begin to fit all I was doing into seven days, let alone six, I took that challenge seriously, and since then I've taken, almost without exception, a day of rest each week, and uh, four to six weeks holiday each year. Because I realized I was breaking a commandment, the, the fourth commandment. We find it in Exodus 20, verse eight. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You have six days in which to do your work, but the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to me. On that day, do no work. It's the longest of the 10 commandments. God has more to say about taking a day of rest than he does about murder or adultery. And his command to us is that we choose to prioritize a Sabbath and to do that even in the most stressful of times. So in Ezekiel, sorry, Exodus 34, 21, on the seventh day you shall rest, even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. So that means don't work on the Sabbath. Even in the busiest seasons of your life, though the seeds may be planted later than you'd hoped, the harvest may get rained on, it may mess with your plans, and uh, you need to make that decision to rest. We can learn to rest, even in the most hectic and stressful of times, because as we seek to live life the way God has designed us to live, we can be confident in cooperating with him that he will look after us. And again, experts agree with God. Alex Pang, again from his book, rest has never been something you do when you have finished everything else. If you want rest, you have to take it. You have to resist the lure of busyness, make time for rest, take it seriously, and protect it from a world that is intent on stealing it. Last year, I recommended Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I hope all of you have read it. And I've been delighted to hear that many of you have. And I've also enjoyed his subsequent book. This is The Emotionally Healthy Leader. If you took that last recommendation, I really would encourage you to take this one. And he has a superb chapter in here on the Sabbath. I I read it sitting by Lake Windermere. And uh, it just is absolutely wonderful. And he notes that pastors particularly, but people in Christian ministry generally, are often the very worst offenders when it comes to ignoring God's command to rest. And he says a Sabbath is not just a day off where you just stack up all the things that you need to, have gotta go to the bank, I've gotta fix the toilet flush, I've gotta do that, do the shopping there, make all that thing happen, and it all just, you finish like shattered, ready to start your week. He says, do all that stuff the rest of the week. On the Sabbath, it's all about delight. It's all about stop work, enjoy rest, practice delight, and contemplate God. Sabbath is to be a day of delight, and I think there's more, much more for me to learn about that, but I'm already beginning to put that much more into effect. Instead of doing the chores that I've saved up, what would delight me today? What would delight me and my wife most today? Let's do that, let's spend the time being delighted and delighted in each other and in the Lord and our family. The philosopher Socrates once said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. For some of us here, we're filling our lives with so much, we're spreading ourselves so thinly, we're not experiencing abundant life. And we have to make a choice. You know, a choice to make time for rest. I found Eugene Peterson quite helpful here. He puts the things that are important to him in his diary first before everything else. So he plans in prayer, reading, silence, and solitude. He plans in leisure, relationships, so that he, does, he can avoid becoming too busy to rest. And then he says, whatever else fits in on top of that, I'll do those things. He says, if there's not time to nurture these essentials, I become a busy pastor, harassed and anxious, a whining, compulsive Martha, instead of a contemplative Mary. I wanna share something with you from my journal. I've I've filled many of these in the last two or three years as I've done the Ignatian spirituality. And um, this was just a reflection on Psalm 131 written by a guy who was one of the most busy people in history, his name was King David. And he writes this, My heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. David was one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. And uh, he was a king who handled concerns and challenges and issues of governing this kingdom in a very volatile world. And yet, rather than thinking too highly of himself, he chose to walk with God like a child, to walk with God our hand in his. And that was a theme when we built this building, that our hand in his. When the going gets rough, we reach for our father's hand and he reaches down and we take his hand and walk with him a great picture of dependence in the face of great matters and wonderful things, which I interpret to mean not so much amazing things, just in a positive way, but rather things which cause us to wonder, what on earth are we gonna do with this issue and this problem and this is too big for me? David chose an attitude. I have calmed and quieted myself. In other words, I've chosen not to get anxious and fret and worry about these huge issues, but I've chosen to put my trust in my father. And he views himself here like a weaned child with its mother, content. A pre-weaned child, right, a breastfeeding child, wants mummy primarily for one or two things, shall we say, okay? Milk, I'm hungry, I wanna be comforted, and I wanna be fed. A weaned child is not looking for that anymore. They know that they're gonna be provided with shelter, meals in due time, clothing. They know that their needs are met, and so a weaned child just jumps on their mother's lap. Why? Because they just wanna be with her, because they love her. I was reminded, actually, on the first night Debbie talked about walking to the bank with her dad as a little girl and just holding his hand and taking three steps for every one of his. On the way to the bank, with no idea whether he was going to plead with the bank manager to extend some sort of loan because they were in financial difficulty. No idea what the business was they were gonna transact when they got there. Simply, I'm with my dad. And he can take care of all those things. And I love that and this picture of us in leadership, whether we're in business, whether we're working in the world, whether we're working in the church. You know, we don't have to carry it all we only have to carry what God has entrusted to us to carry and to get the perspective right when it comes to what He will carry. And it's a, it's a volitional choice when we're getting wound up and stressed and anxious and worried. I have calmed and quieted myself. And I find in my devotional times, I'll very often after I've prayed and read the Bible or whatever, I'll, I'll just sit still, maybe for 15 minutes, in as complete silence as possible, and the only thing I allowed to go through my head really are scriptures that talk about being still. For instance, Exodus 14:14, 14, 14, "The Lord will fight for you; you need only to be still." Psalm 37, "Be still and wait for the Lord." And it's often in those busiest of times that we can become tempted to keep going and strive to fix it ourselves and sometimes that can be the source of our stress but as we read in Matthew, Jesus reminds us, walk with me. Just walk with me and your yoke will be easy. If we choose to quiet and calm ourselves, to not allow ourselves to become overwhelmed and trust it to God, we will find stress melting away. We will find ourselves Flying like an airplane that's flying at 50,000 feet can hit an air pocket and turbulence and drop 10,000 and not be concerned. You try flying at 8,000 feet, hit an air pocket and turbulence and drop 10,000, it's gonna hurt. And so the more replenished we are emotionally, the more connected we are spiritually, the higher our altitude, the more freedom we have as we negotiate the demands of life. When I was a boy, one of my favorite things I was given was a bow and arrows for my birthday, and this picture isn't of me, but it shows the kind of longbow that I had. From watching Robin Hood and William Teller as a child, I knew what a bow looked like, okay, Uh, but I was a bit taken aback when I took it out of its box and I found that it looked like this, an almost completely straight piece of wood. That does not look like a bow. What is up with that? And my dad showed me how to string it, to attach the string to one end, and then push down with all my might on the other end to bend the wood until the loop of the string could be slipped over the groove in the end. And in the instructions, it said it was vital that after using the bow, it needed to be unstrung. Otherwise, it would very quickly ruin the bow permanently. It would lose its power. If it was left highly strung, Intention tension for too long, it would lose its ability to work effectively. That is the same with us. A little tension can be a good thing, it can motivate us into action, it can help us focus, but too much, for too long, unrelenting, we will cease to be effective. 18 months ago, I read the book Soul Keeping by John Altberg. All these books, I'm recommending most of them, except for rest at uh, the bookstall. Uh, in this, he writes this, entering into a very busy season of ministry, I called Dallas, that's Dallas Willard, to ask him what I needed to do to stay spiritually healthy. There was a long pause. With Dallas, there was nearly always a long pause. And then he said slowly, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Wanting more wisdom from the phone conversation, John Ortberg asks, what other spiritual nuggets he had for him. There is nothing else, he said. (laughs) Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And I read that and tweeted a picture of the book with that quote 18 months ago, admitting that I was properly challenged by that. If I'm to live freely and lightly, if I'm to be as effective for the kingdom as I want to be, I need, as do you, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life. And I know that that may feel near on impossible. You may be asking yourself, well, how am I gonna find time to rest? I've got so much on already. How can I possibly take a good Sabbath and all that? And even in preparing this talk, (laughs) circumstance would have it, I found myself saying, can I really afford to take a day off tomorrow? Because I've gotta get this talk ready for the NLC but I did take the day fully off. But as I've, uh, you know, I've been challenged personally about this issue of rest, I believe the Lord would challenge us as leaders within the movement as far as possible to be serious about taking a Sabbath and placing rest interspersed through our week because it's only from that place of rest that we can freely do the things that God has called each of us to do. I'm gonna finish with a little illustration which I think profoundly makes the point for us. comes from a book I read over 20 years ago, The Contemplative Pastor by Eugene Peterson. I read Working the Angles at the same time, hated them both because they confronted everything about my striving, driven personality, and I put them down for 20 years, but I picked it up again. (laughs) This is what it says. In Herman Melville's Moby Dick, there is a turbulent scene in which a whaleboat scuds across a frothing ocean in pursuit of the great white whale, Moby Dick. The sailors are laboring fiercely, every muscle taut, all attention and energy concentrated on the task. The cosmic conflict between good and evil is joined chaotic sea and demonic sea monster versus the morally outraged man, Captain Ahab. In this boat, however, there is one man who does nothing. He doesn't hold an oar, he doesn't perspire, he doesn't shout, he is languid in the crash and the cursing. This man is the harpooner, quiet and poised, waiting. And then the sentence, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, The harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness and not out of toil. Melville's sentence is a text to set alongside the psalmists, be still and know that I am God. And alongside Isaiah's, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Pastors know that there's something radically wrong with the world. We are also engaged in doing something about it. The stimulus of conscience, the memory of ancient outrage, the challenge of biblical command, involve us in the anarchic sea that is the world. The white whale, symbol of evil, and the crippled captain, personification of violated righteousness, are joined in battle. History is a novel of spiritual conflict. In such a world, noise is inevitable and immense energy is expended. But if there is no harpooner in the boat, there will be no proper finish to the chase. Or if the harpooner is exhausted, having abandoned his assignment and become an oarsman, he will not be ready and accurate when it is time to throw his javelin. Somehow, it always seems more compelling to assume the work of the oarsman, laboring mightily in a moral cause, throwing our energy into a fray we know has immortal consequence. And it always seems more dramatic to take on the outrage of a Captain Ahab, obsessed with a vision of vengeance and retaliation, brooding over the ancient injury done by the enemy. There is, though, another, sorry, other important work to do. Someone must throw the dart. Some must be harpooners. The metaphors Jesus used for the life of ministry are frequently images of the single, the small, and the quiet, which have effects far in excess of their appearance, salt, leaven, seed. Our culture publicizes the opposite emphasis, the big, the multitudinous, the noisy, It is then a strategic necessity that pastors deliberately ally themselves with the quiet, poised harpooners and not leap frenzied to the oars. There is far more need that we develop the skills of the harpooner than the muscles of the oarsman. It is far more biblical to learn quietness and attentiveness before God than to be overtaken by what John Oman named the twin perils of ministry, flurry and worry, for flurry dissipates energy and worry constipates it. As leaders, our greatest effectiveness will come out of a place of rest. And the efforts of those who strain at the oars and perspire and work hard in so many ways is potentially wasted if we as leaders are too exhausted to throw that harpoon accurately. Jesus invites us to walk freely and lightly with him, partnering with him in extending his kingdom. Finding rest doesn't always come easy. The demands of leadership, the expectations of others Our work, our family life can at at times just feel too much, but I believe the Lord is challenging us all, as he has challenged me, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives, to make a choice to step into the freedom which he is offering to us.